Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and this is session number 217 of Exploring the Lord of the Rings. And tonight, we are going to talk about prose. It's time to begin the quest of the ring, this very day as is. So uh, now we finally begin. This is stage one of the uh, of the uh, well, if we count this as stage one, it will be many, many stages of the uh, journey to uh, uh, Mount Doom. But um, this is a, this is a solemn moment. You know, this is an important transition. And I am more and more convinced that this is really um, I would definitely count this as the first day of the post. I, we're technically still within the geographical boundaries of Rivendell, but the time you know, the time that began at the beginning of, uh, you know, many meetings, the beginning of chapter one of book two, when Frodo wakes up, you know, the, the, the interlude in Rivendell is definitely over. The, the poem, I think, is very clearly outside. Exactly, Snake. We're spiritually outside of Rivendell. That's exactly, that's exactly where we are. That's exactly where we are. Um, uh, so, um, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, the oath discussion? No, we're not going to get to the oath discussion tonight. No way. No way. Um, uh Maybe Boromir will sound his horn, but that would be ambitious. Um, but uh, do we get to the Balrog by Christmas, J. Doe? That's a great question. Balrog? No, no way. It's no chance. Yeah, of which year, Ray asks. Yeah, no, the Balrog is actually quite far away. Um, I've just been doing another uh, reread of The Fellowship of the Ring uh, recently, and um, it's there's a lot. There's a lot. The Ring Goes South is a long chapter, actually. Um, and uh, so is Journey in the Dark. Uh, so, yeah, it's. Um, I sometimes forget until I'm listening through again that there are three Moria chapters. You know, there are three chapters underground, basically. Um, the same number as there are in the Old Forest, right? We're in Moria for as long as we were in the Old Forest. Um, and that's. Um, that's some time. That's some time. And of course, the Balrog isn't until the uh, uh, isn't until the very end. So, Christmas on Carothras, Lincoln. That sounds that sounds uh, likely. That sounds likely. Um, but uh, we'll we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I am perhaps uh, too wise now to uh, make uh, confident predict predictions about where we will get. Um, but um, anyway, uh, we are going to set off tonight. Before we do that, um, my announcements for the day today, um, I just wanted to... Oh, hang on, I've lost them. Where did they go? Oh, here they are. Um, we have uh, in our space program, so if you go to signumuniversity.org slash space, we just announced our most recent modules that we've confirmed for March uh, that I wanted to draw your attention to. There's some really fun things here. Uh, the two in particular that I want... So... We have our we have uh, creative writing 
module, which is great. Uh, this is a long project preparation. So for folks who are thinking about embarking on a larger project or working on, especially if you're working up towards like a, uh, you know, NaNoWriMo kind of situation or something, um, uh, Sparrow is wonderful at helping folks to kind of orient and organize themselves and get ready for that kind of a big project. Um, we also have uh, the, the second of our fairy tales modules, um, uh, Pilar Barrera is doing a, a survey of like a, a bunch of different kind of uh, uh, fairy tale ideas and motifs uh, through over several different cultures. It's a fascinating, uh, it's a fascinating uh, uh, study. Tolkien and alchemy with Sarah Brown is one that I certainly wanted to bring people's uh, attention to. Um, she's uh, looking at the way in which alchemical concepts of change are used thematically uh, in Tolkien, especially in The Lord of the Rings. Really fascinating stuff. And then uh, the one that uh, I'm especially excited to see run, I've been excited to run this uh, from the beginning, and I've been uh, delighted that we're able to run it here in March, is Hieroglyphics 1. Uh, so the first module of our series on an introduction to reading Egyptian hieroglyphics, which is something I've always been fascinated by. Um, uh, so I, I, I'm really excited to be able to offer that. So uh, Hieroglyphics 1 is going to be happening. Um, we already have two cohorts of people who are going through learning Old English and learning Latin. Um, and uh, they've been they've been doing great and having a wonderful time. Um, but we're going to now start a cohort learning Hieroglyphics. So um, uh, anyway. Uh, oh, cool. Getriana says she got a space token as a birthday present. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's fun. Um, so no, Marhas, these are not the, um, all of our, our space modules. These are non-credit classes. Uh, this is just a continuing education program. Um, our space modules are designed to be um, just fun and learning the opportunity for you to learn stuff that you've always wanted to learn, but to learn it in an environment where you're likely to succeed at learning it. Right? There are a lot of people who just, I mean, how many times have you set out to say, like, I'm going to teach myself this language or I'm going to do, you know, there's so many resources that you can have to learn stuff, right? Or I'm going to go and I'm going to read about this or something. Um, but it doesn't like happen actually, right? Doesn't actually come through. Uh, space is designed to be a, you know, uh, uh, an encouraging environment in which you're in a small group class with a dedicated teacher who's working with you and helping you work through things. It's low impact. It's low key. There's not a lot of homework. It's not designed to be intense. It's not designed to push you really hard. It's designed to be something that you can do on the side as like an extra that is both fun and profitable and enables you to learn more about stuff you've always wanted to know about, to pursue interests you've never gotten a chance to pursue or you've never succeeded in pursuing. Um, that, is, um, uh, that is what we are uh, doing. Uh, in the uh, in the space program, so they are not credit courses. They're not. They're not. This is not a degree program. Um, it is. Uh, it is just an opportunity. Just le learning opportunity. Um, so anyway, um, I wanted to draw those to your attention. Our March modules are going to be uh, uh, are going to be really fun. All right, let us dig back into the prose text here. Right immediately after the poem, it was a cold and dreary day near the end of December. Notice how this seems to begin. Notice how that seems like a beginning, 
right? I mean, it sounds like it could be the beginning of a chapter. Goodness, it could be the first line of a novel, right? It was a cold and gray day near the end of December, right? We're setting the scene. Um, I believe, as we were talking about before, I, I see every reason to believe that the conversation between Frodo and Bilbo was happening on this day, like early in the morning on this day before they, you know, go outside and start standing in the cold. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, this is definitely a transition. And the fact that the poem then is left as like, that is the, that is the tradition, that tr tradition, transition, that is the end, right? That is the end of that whole earlier segment, the whole two and a third chapters or so that we've gotten uh, of the Rivendell segment uh, of this entire narrative. Um, and in particular, that moment of reflection, reflection on the quest in part, right? As Frodo is being equipped and prepared for the quest by Bilbo, as Bilbo is, I mean, we, we did a lot of uh, emphasis. Uh, we, we spent a lot of time talking about what it meant to Bilbo to give up staying, right? And to give up, um, uh, his mithril coat. And uh, that's very important. I'm glad we talked about those things. But I think we actually spoke less about what it like means to Frodo, right? For him to be setting off, um, you know, equipped with the all of the relics of Bilbo's old adventures, you know, to have really kind of taken up the mantle of Bilbo in a very direct way like this, right? Um, so... Anyway, that's um, that's a really big deal. It's a really big moment, right? Um, and it is very, you know, and, and you can see where that also sort of signals it's the end of the waiting period, right? Now he's ready to go. He's ready to walk out the door now. He's been equipped. Uh, he's been armed. Uh, he's been prepared. And in that moment, at that same time, he's having this moment of reflection on his previous life, right? Remember he, what he tries to do is think of how to thank Bilbo for all of his past kindnesses, right? He's looking back on his life and, and thanking the distant cousin, honestly, right? The distant cousin who took him in and adopted him and, you know, raised him like his own, uh, like his own son. Um, and uh, it's a, it's a, a powerful moment. Again, not only just for the sake of the emotions that that uh, uh, brings up, but because of the occasion, right? When he's setting out, Bilbo might be singing in his poem with confidence of the returning feet, right? But Frodo, I think, is not quite there sharing that's the same level of confidence that Bilbo's poem, I think, would seek to impart. Um, and so Bilbo's song, as we were, you know, which we have been discussing now for a couple months, um, is really the, uh, the final conclusion, not only of that scene and of that moment of looking forward and also looking behind, um, but of that, this whole, this whole time of, of planning, pausing and healing and planning and preparing, um, for, what is to come next. Um, and uh, there's Bilbo sitting beside the fire and thinking and then subordinating all of that thinking to the anticipation of the returning feet at the end of the day, right? Um, but um, yeah, Bjorning, I don't think it is fair 
to say, I think that Bilbo does have Estelle, um, but Frodo not yet. Yeah. Um, Frodo's relationship with Hope, I think, is going to be a really interesting thing to watch, actually. Um, him and Sam, of course, I'm going to be watching the both of them and their relationship with Hope, because that's going to uh, become very explicitly relevant, uh, very explicitly relevant as we move as we move through um, to juice, man. I can say I can see Frodo feeling more numb than anything. That seems to be kind of fair, um, though. Again, he was feeling very intensely. It's not like he has no feelings, you know, he's not experiencing feelings or something like that. Right. I mean, he's. Uh, uh, definitely feeling some very intense things um, in uh, uh, in that previous scene. But I hear you. I mean, he doesn't seem to be... Um, he doesn't seem to be thinking very clearly, though I would remind us of the... Um, uh, I would remind us of the scene with him looking out at the star. Remember one of the things, like the, the kind of culminating picture of those months that pass while they're in Rivendell, right? The, the majority of their time in Rivendell is remember, we get that image of him looking out his window at night and seeing that red star down near the horizon, right? Um, in the South. Uh, so that's, um, it's not that he's just not thinking about it, right? He is definitely thinking about it. Um, yeah. And it likely about, that's an interesting observation that other than Amon Hen, I think we very rarely get into Frodo's head after this. That would be an interesting thing to watch. If there is a shift in the narrative perspective that way. I hadn't thought of that question, but it's a very interesting question. Um, we do. Yeah. I, I just... yeah. What you're making me think of there is the more... Um, the more I think about it, uh, likely about the more I think about all those passages, like passages keep coming to my mind, mostly from early in the book, when we are told not just what Frodo's thinking, but what several of the characters are thinking. Um, uh, remember, I mean, like just one random example off the top of my head, um, when we're told we're given Fatty Bulger's comment about not wanting to go into the old forest. Um, and we're given a statement about what Fatty Bulger is thinking, right? Um, uh, and we get, um, uh, yeah, there are several times, but it's especially in those first three to five chapters. Um, but no, no, we get a, I mean, obviously we get a bunch of Frodo's in, internal perspective, um, in the Barrow, for instance. Um, but yeah, that, that is a really good, um, that is a really good topic for a paper to Juice Man, analyzing the shifts in the narrator's perspective. What kind of patterns can we really consistently see? How is that, is it right? Is it correct? Is it accurate to say that we don't get inside any of their heads quite as much after this? In my, my sense of it is that that's right. But I'm not really sure. And Matt, you're right that Frodo is the narrator, but of course, we, we don't really officially learn about that until the end, right? That is to say, it is not obtruded upon... The narrative itself does not obtrude the identity of the narrator upon our attention, right? Which often they do, 
right? I mean, sometimes we'll, we may get a narrative aside or like, you know, a marginal note or something like something to actually indicate who's writing the text that we're reading, right? That's not an unknown um, uh, kind of technique, especially in a story which we're at the end going to see the protagonist writing. I mean, the writing of this story that we are reading is going to be one of the culminations of this entire drama, right? The the where where this story ultimately is leading to is the writing of this story, um, and that moment when Frodo has finished the story and hands it to Sam and says, "The last pages are for you." It's not the end of the book, right? There's more that comes after that, and it's important, but um, but that's a big deal, right? That's a that's a it's a really important moment um, uh, that this story is leading up to. But until then. We don't know it, right? We don't. We don't see it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Wob, Wob is asking about the relationship between Estelle and Amdir, um, the two f- kinds of hope, and yeah, it is more than just a rational Amdir. But here's the thing. Here's the thing that I want us to be most careful about. Try. I want us, if we can, and I'm at least as guilty as as others here, I want us to try to be careful. To be careful not to impose external definitions, if we can. We need to, when we're thinking about hope, and especially when we're wanting to look at Frodo and Sam and their relationship with hope, especially in in book six, right? I mean, that's where, um, books four and six both, but especially book six, um, that's where it really kind of comes to crisis, right? And um, I think that we need to build that vocabulary carefully from within. Now, obviously, Tolkien defined the two, Amdir and Estelle himself, and we can quote his own words and get his definition. But that's not this text, right? Um, as we've seen, as we've seen in our discussions of the nature of Middle Earth, uh, which we're still in the middle of, so I still have it always sitting right next to me here on my desk, um, or whether in our discussion of Morgoth's Ring, um, last year, uh, or even of, uh, some of the stuff from Sauron Defeated before that, in this, in the years, you know, the decade, 10 to 15 years after he published The Lord of the Rings, he did a lot of thinking and reflecting on a lot of these topics. And he defined a lot of things and he developed a lot of these ideas. And he does a wonderful job, always a very interesting job. Um, it's always fascinating to see him bring those ideas into contact with the text, not just change the text, try to change the text to fit it, um, but using the text as a fixed point, right? Explain uh, how what it says in the text fits with this other thing. Anyway, my point is a lot of his refinements of these ideas happen after the fact, happen after this text, right? Um, And it's not that it's wrong, you know, to bring that stuff in, totally not wrong to bring it in. But I would like to first before we do that, try to understand how it's working in this story, right? And sometimes I think if we go straight to, you know, the Athrobeth or something like that, right? You know, some of those later writings and really sort of embrace those concepts as he's going to articulate them, ultimately, in some cases, almost 20 years after he wrote this book, 
right? Um, less than that often after he published it, but, um, uh, but a long time, even longer uh, after he wrote it. Uh, I think we can end up kind of accidentally muddying the waters a little bit, if you see what I mean. Um, let's try to see how much we can stick within this story to understand the vocabulary as it's being developed here. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, okay. Anyway, um, yeah, Trifle, we'll get there to Goadriel's statement. Uh, what should be, shall be is uh, a really interesting one, right? Um, but we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there in context. Um, but, um, but I certainly agree, Wob. I think it's very safe to say that Bilbo really, really wants Frodo to know that Bilbo believes in him. Um, yes, agreed. Absolutely agreed. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. JJ corrects and says, we hope to get there, assuming the world lasts that long. Uh, agreed. Agreed. Okay. Hey, I have an idea. Let's read more than the first sentence. It was a cold gray day near the end of December. The east wind was streaming through the bare branches of the trees and seething in the dark pines on the hills. Ragged clouds were hurrying overhead, dark and low. As the cheerless shadows of the early evening began to fall, the company made ready to set out. They were to start at dusk, for Elrond counseled them to journey under cover of night as often as they could until they were far from Rivendell. All right, let's pause there. Let's think first about the descriptions. And Jackie, oh my goodness, you're right. It seems like a terrible day to set out, doesn't it? Um, that's why my subtitle for this slide was an unmerry Christmas, because of course, though the narrative doesn't say, uh, the appendix tells us in the in the tale of years that it's in fact December 25th, uh, the day that they set out from Rivendell. Um, uh, this is a very unpleasant day, right? And let's look more about this. Oh, whoa, I totally agree with you there. Um, the, um, the word seething is my favorite word in this whole paragraph. Um, what a remarkable word that is. The east wind was streaming through the bare branches of the trees and seething in the dark pines on the hills. Um, what a wonderful example of a word usage that will often just go right past you, right? Um, when you're not stopping and thinking it through like this. Um, but Mad Violinist, I agree. You can hear exactly what it sounds like. It is such an awesome word choice because it is, on the one hand, metaphorical, right? That sense of seething. Um, it, it, it tells you something about, like, the atmosphere. This... Um, this sense of a brooding disturbance and menace in the distance, right? Not right near them, but off in the distance, they can hear like the, um, you know, like the, like the hills themselves are like, you know, simmering in a slow burning anger or something like that, right? Really cool. Yeah. Restless and resentful. Whoa. I agree. I agree. Um, and, um, but at the same time, uh, Chris, I think you're exactly right that it's also practically onomatopoetic, right? 
um, seething, seething. The 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 long e sound combined with the th, the eeth, eeth, is exactly what the wind sounds like in dark pines on the hills. Um, even the sibilant at the beginning, you know, seethe, seethe. Uh, yeah, it's perfect. It's perfect. It's just beautiful in that way. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's a powerful. Where, and then the, it's not just they're dark pines, right? Just to make it even more ominous. It's not just seething in the pines on the hills. It's seething in the dark pines on the hill. Like they're surrounded by, even in Rivendell, right? The happy valley of Rivendell is surrounded by darkness. And the darkness is seething, lying in wait, right? Um, uh, oh, man. Yeah. And uh, I like that observation, uh, Blad, about the, um, the sort of action words, right? The east wind was streaming through the bare branches and seething. Ragged clouds were hurrying overhead, dark and low. The um, streaming and hurrying words give you this sense, as uh, Blood the Inspirer says, about uh, feeling like the company is being swept away, right? Um, they're, being, they're being carried off, but, but it's, not a, it, it's not like the express route to their destination, right? At least not the right kind of one. Um, it's, it's, it's dark. It's ominous. Um, the ragged clouds are hurrying overhead, dark and low. Um, low as if like the, the, they're dark, like the dark pines, right? But the clouds are, uh, the clouds are hurrying and they're low, um, uh, as if like they themselves are closing in on them, right? So the, the pines are seething all around them from the side. The clouds are, uh, are, 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 you know, sweeping just above them from below. They're, it's like they're surrounded by, um, uh, by enemies. Valori, that's interesting. The whole setup feels like a dull panic attack. Um, yeah, yeah, something like that. Um, uh, yeah, absolutely. And yes, uh, Matt... These are the pines that Frodo was looking forward to getting up to on the morning of the council. That's exactly right. Um, when, you know, uh, he is when he wakes up and he's feeling much better and he says, I, I would like to get up into those pine woods up there. Right. He wants to go hiking up in those woods on that day. It all seemed quite cheerful. Right. Uh, quite cheerful and desirable. And it was an expression of his, you know, increased health and uh, 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 vitality and spirit. Right. That he wanted to go out for a hike and explore. And now, right now, the darkness is closing around. It is a cold gray day near the end of December. It is at almost the darkest point in the year. Right. We're just a, a couple of days. Probably. This is, of course, always misleading because the 25th of December in the Shire calendar is not an exact parallel to the 25th of September, um, necessarily. Um, actually, I, I guess it works. In December, it works. It doesn't work in every month. Um, but I think it does work in December, doesn't it? Anyway. Um, but the point is, we're very near the winter uh, solstice, right? Um, so a cold gray day near the end of December is, uh, uh, is also pretty evocative in that sense um, to tell us how cold it is, how gray it is, uh, and uh, that this is, uh, uh, you know, a, a day 
the day itself, right? Surrounded by, by darkness. Um, like we about, I agree just after the shortest day of the year, right? Um, so it's near the winter solstice, but the tide has turned, right? Um, when they set out is when the days will start to get longer, right? Um, and, uh, on the one hand, you know, I don't know that we read too much into that, but on the other hand, there it is, right? <laughs> there it is. Um, he's told us in the narrative, not just in the calendars in the back, but in the, you know, in the, in the, the tables in the back, but in the narrative itself, that it's near the end of December, right near the winter solstice. That's when they begin in the dark, you know, near the darkest day of the year. Um, yeah, yeah. Right. There's no December 20, 25th in the Shire calendar. There's, uh, uh, or the, you know, four Yule 25th, there's four Yule 24th and then Yule. Right. Right. Okay. Good. Good. Thank you for Thales for, um, correcting that. Um, yeah, Josh. Yeah, it does have something like an always winter and never Christmas kind of feel about it. Right. Even though it is literally Christmas. Right. Um, instead of, you know, we certainly have no merriment. We certainly have no joy. Um, and yet and yet. It's the beginning of the journey. And as they journey, the days are going to get longer. Right. Um, uh, it is. The tide has turned. Right. And that's and that's interesting. Um as the cheerless shadows of the early evening began to fall, the company made ready to set out. Um, and they're starting at dusk. They're starting at night, right? Um, and, of course, they're going to be marching through the night on one of the longest nights of the year, right? Right after, right after the solstice. Um, and, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah. Um, anyway, um, yes, yes. Um, the shadows and darkness in this paragraph as a whole are the things that are most striking to me. And notice how, in a sense, they embrace this, right? From the beginning... a theme that we're going to see many times, right? Um, I think the most explicit statement of it is going to be in Legolas and Gimli's account of the Battle of Pelargir, <clears throat> when, um, when they say that, you know, by the, you know, when they talk about how by the enemy's own weapons, was it, was it worsted? Right. Um, that's going to be a thing that we see on a, like, so what are they doing on this day? Right. That all of the shadows and the darkness around them seem ominous, seem hostile, um, seem closing in around them. Uh, and at the time when the shadows and the darkness are strongest, right near the winter solstice, um, you know, when the nights are longest and the days shortest and weakest. And yet, Right. And yet they're setting out at dusk. And Elrond counsels them to journey under cover of night for as often as they could. Right. Um, they are taking shelter in the darkness. They're seeking the darkness. Right. The darkness is their ally 
in the wilderness. Um, and likely about, I agree. I am not a hundred percent sure how to understand their resolution. Elrond's advice, I should say, perhaps Elrond's counsel to them, um, to journey under cover of night as likely about says, um, the enemy hates light and warmth. Orcs prefer night, and yet the fellowship hides in the dark. It feels odd to me. It always has. And likely about you'll remember that the Gandalf's letter to Frodo at Bree told him, do not travel by night, right? Um, that's what... Um, that was, of course because he was think thinking about the ringwraiths themselves. Um, and Aragorn agrees that in darkness, they are stronger, right? Um, in darkness and loneliness, they are strongest. It's not, I think, the ringwraiths that we are um, worried, that Elrond is worried about here. Um, so this seems to me to be an indication of what they are afraid of. And this is going to be, this is something I was, as I said, I've been rereading Fellowship of the Ring again. Um, I'm, uh, I'm way forward now. Um, um, I'm now up in uh, just at the beginning of the journey in the dark chapter. And um, this is just something I was noticing in this read through. I was thinking what I'm always thinking now when I read through the, uh, the rest of the Lord of the Rings, the, you know, those, uh, I can't wait to get to this and discuss this and explore in the Lord of the Rings. Um, but um, they're afraid of detection. How do they think they're going to be detected? We seem to have our first clue right here, right? Um, it's clearly not orcs, likely about, as you say, that they're afraid of, right? Nor even the power of the enemy himself, in a sense, if you see what I mean, right? Um Sauron, too, is strong in the shadow. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, and I agree, Frumius Bujum, it probably is safe to assume the ringwraiths are out of the picture for a bit. Yeah. Um, the spies seem to be corporeal. I'm tempted to say normal, right? Um, things like perhaps beasts and birds, perhaps people, right? Um, all of which are um, um, all of which are much more likely to see them in the day than in the night. But he goes on, you should fear the many eyes of the servants of Sauron, he said. I do not doubt that news of the discomfiture of the riders has already reached him and he will be filled with wrath. Soon now, his spies on foot and wing will be abroad in the northern lands. Even of the sky above, you must beware as you go on your way. Um, the many eyes of the servants of Sauron. What are those servants? Spies on foot and wing will be abroad. And since we have spies on wings, we, who are presumably birds, right? Um, but, um, therefore, presumably some of his spies on foot are animals as well as people, right? 
<clears throat> presumably. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, let's see, who's... Uh, Fourth Dallas was just saying, I think animals spying for a distant fallen angelic spirit might be a bit of a stretch for normal. I hear you. I hear you. Um, but it is an interesting question, though. Uh, by normal, of course, I just meant in the sense that they are real animals, right? Um, not just spirit beings or something. Um, but, yeah. How, how does Sauron recruit? How does this work? How does he... How do they communicate? I'm trying to figure out. I'm trying to figure out how Sauron gets his information. Exactly. Like, what is the mechanism of Sauron's information? And I don't know. Um, but, um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Slowly, Matt, I assume, would be some of the ways in which uh, that, would, that would happen. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I wonder. Um, and I agree. Several of you are saying how much you love the phrase, the discomfiture of the riders. I, I agree. I do not doubt that the news of the discomfiture of the riders has already reached him. Um, it's such a delightful word. It's, it's delightful because it's kind of, it's kind of prissy, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's, uh, it's it's a it's an understated word, but it's a fancy understated. It's a very unusual word. Um, uh, yeah, they um, the discomfiture of the writers. Notice what he is emphasizing here, right? Yeah, Fort Thomas says it's an odd place for a euphemism. Exactly, exactly. Um, clearly, I agree. Barry Adir, yeah, that uh, uh, he is um, Elrond, that is, is clearly wishing to remind them that the Black Riders are still to be reckoned with, right? Um, don't let yourself even hope that maybe they were destroyed, right? Gandalf has already dismissed that idea, but maybe it lingers, <clears throat> right? Maybe, uh, maybe some kind of hope lingers there. Um, and he certainly seems interested in uh, quelling any of that. I do not doubt that news of the discomfiture of the riders. He does make it sound pretty minor, right? Um, like the riders had a pretty bad day. Uh, you know, it's like the riders had a bad hair day or something, right? And it's obviously more than that. Um, the riders were made more than a little uncomfy at the fort of Bruinen. And yet, big picture... Yeah, actually, that's kind of what it boiled down to. Um, uh, yeah, exactly. I don't think it is that much of an understatement. I really don't. Um, uh, yeah. No, I agree, likely about they are more than unhorsed and less than dead. Yes, yes, they did not just lose their horses in the sense of all they need is another horse and then they're right as rain again. Um, and we talked about that. Um, uh but at the same time, uh, discomfiture is real, right? They were made uncomfortable uh, for quite some time. Um, 
And I'm not sure that that word is not actually a little bit stronger than that. I don't think made uncomfortable is a quite sufficient paraphrase of what discomfiture means. Um, it's a little stronger. It's a little stronger than that. Um, but, um, but still, at the best, it's not been that much more than an inconvenience. Um, it's an inconvenience. It's inconvenience, wasn't it? Me? It is an inconvenience that is quickly set right once they get back to Mordor, right? Once they get back to Mordor. Um, yeah. Uh, see, Arden Crown, that is the general sense that I've had as well, that discomfiture can be used to refer to a battlefield defeat. Yeah, now, I always had the impression when reading it in a context like that, that there was a little bit of understatement happening there, right? Um, but, but, but yeah, yeah, uh, um, it's, it's more, um, it's more than just being uncomfortable, right? Like, you know, the day was hot and they were starting to feel, you know, a little warm, you know, and uh, like they'd really quite like a cold drink, right? That's not discomfiture. It's uh, um, not experiencing discomfiture in this same way. Um, yeah. Well, that's interesting. Arnas says discomfiture adds embarrassment to inconvenience. I like that. I think I can get behind that. Um, I think I can get behind that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, humiliation is attached to it. Um, and so notice what that concept adds to this statement, right? Um, he's potentially, therefore, not only saying, let me remind you that the writers were not destroyed, um, but merely inconvenienced temporarily, right? But in addition, he's saying, they were humiliated um, and they and Sauron are probably going to be ticked off about that, right? As he points to immediately afterwards and he will be filled with wrath. Probably not at them, right? Um, uh, this is, uh, you know, get ready for Ringwraiths part two. Now it's personal, right? Um, you know, that's, uh, that's, there's, I think, potentially also a warning there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. Look out for the Ringwraith strike back. That's, uh, that's just what might happen, Ray Burns. Precisely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, see, well, but I don't think it's quite... I think ironic understatement, I think, is too strong. There is a little understatement in it. Um, uh, but I don't think it's ironic, I don't think it's ironic. I think again. I think it's 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 calculated. Um, it's calculated to draw attention to certain things, right? Um, but but I don't think it's quite it's quite sardonic a little bit. But again, I I, I think it's too strong. Um, this isn't the same thing as saying, um, you know, like talk about. Isildur, uh, you know, and Sauron and Elendil uh, at the last, at the Battle of the Last Alliance on, on, on uh, you know, Mount Doom, and to refer to, you know, uh, 
the little setback that Sauron suffered, uh, you know, on Mount Doom that day, right? That's a sardonic understatement. Um, that it's not the same kind of tone, I think, there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, yeah. Um, yeah, those are the two primary things, I think, Bjorning. Um, he's pointing out that they were humiliated and that they're going to come back strong and mad and that they definitely didn't defeat them. They will be coming back. Yeah, both of those two things seem to me to be involved in that comfortable. And like I said, it's <clears throat> it's the register of that word. He's not using a lot of words like that. Um, highly polysyllabic, archaic words, right? Um, I mean, look at the rest of his speech there. Some of his syntax is a little archaic, even of the sky above you must beware as you go on your way, right? The the red, the syntax and register of that sentence is, is uh, formal and archaic, but his vocabulary is not chock full of words like discomfiture, right? That's a, that's a, that's a very particular choice. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yes, very few Latinate words apart from that one in his speech. It is, Gildalowin, thank you. You've exactly put your finger on one of the things that I was trying to point to, though I was fumbling with it. But that's exactly right. I wasn't thinking of it in those terms, but that's precisely what I'm feeling there. Um, how po very polysyllabic and Latinate that word is. Um, that's not how Elrond normally... T it's, it's not very characteristic of Elrond's normal speech and certainly stands out stands out here. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, okay. Um, yeah, Graham, I can totally imagine that. Um, a little pause, right, while he was saying it. I do not doubt that the news of the discomfiture of the writers, right? Um, yeah, yeah, I think that's... Uh, I think I, I could see it. I, I could see that working. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, soon now his spies on foot and wing will be abroad in the northern lands. How? Why? Notice the, um, huh. Notice the implication of that. Soon now. His spies on foot and wing will be abroad in the northern lands. He... He has to... send them, right? I mean, we know there already are spies in the northern lands. Gandalf was afraid of spies in the Shire when he was talking to Frodo way back in the beginning of Book One, right? Um, that's why he infenestrated Sam, because he thought he was a sinister spy. Turns out he was a benevolent spy, but still. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, that he thinks that the spies on foot and wing will not be abroad in the northern land, have not been to this point and are only going to be soon. Um, 
following up on his statement that the rider, he does not doubt that news of the discomfiture of the riders has already reached him. He's already heard about that. How would he hear about that? Probably from the ring wraiths themselves, right? But at the very least, some of the spies might have seen that happen and that news might have gotten back to him. Um, But notice what that shows. Matt, I come back to your answer to that you know, the, talking about how does Sauron get his information, and your answer was slowly, right? Um, yeah. I do not doubt that news has reached him. It's been two months, two and a half months since the discovery. The writers have been just, dis- they were discomfited quite some time ago, right? Um, but he's saying, I do not doubt. Like, there is, somebody might doubt. He doesn't, for the record, right? But it is a, a matter of potential doubt as to whether or not he's even heard it now, two months later, right? Um, maybe the writers are back themselves. Maybe somebody else got news to him. Um, Gandalf does suggest, remember, Gandalf says in the council, um, already he may know, even as we speak. So Gandalf opens the possibility that news got back to Sauron right away, right? Within a week. Um, But Elrond is less certain of that. Um, But he doesn't doubt that he does know. And he would have had to first receive the news and then send out spies, like from Mordor, presumably, to get up here. And that's why now, two months later... Um, any day now, his spies on foot and wing are going to be abroad in the northern lands. Um, so yeah, I think that's really, um, I think that's really interesting that he, again, I think we're learning something, if not about how Sauron's spy network works, at least how Elrond believes Sauron's spy network works. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, You know, Bjorning, you're right. I can't rule out the fact that Sauron, or sorry, that Elrond has some kind of foreknowledge, right? You know, does he, is he forecasting or is he foreseeing here? I'm not sure. Um, But again, thinking of the way that he talked about, you know, out east by knowledge fails, right? Um, Does he have knowledge about what's going on? Does he know, in fact? Like, does he have a way of perceiving in some way, and therefore knowing by, I was going to say direct observation, probably still would count as direct observation, perhaps, um, that there are not yet spies, you know, here in the northern lands. Oop, sorry. Accidentally skipped ahead. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, But it does suggest that he sent them from Mordor. Even of the sky above, you must beware as you go on your way. So we get the foreshadowing, of course, of the Corbine. Um Yeah. Now you're right. He does... Um, Elrond does have some experience with how Sauron has worked in the past, and Sauron does seem to have habits. Um, Almerea, you're right. Um, again, here I'm thinking of Galadriel and her familiarity with... Uh, with 
Sauron as well. Um, yeah. I wonder, well, yeah. Thinking about his spies on foot and wing, um, there have been a bunch of references to the Krabine, of course, and we'll get there eventually. Um, not too long now. I'm not too far away from the Krabine. But um, although this is a kind of foreshadowing of that, I wonder. Um, I wonder if that's yeah. I wonder many things. There are many very inconclusive elements. I find the rest of the rest of the Ringo South fairly mysterious, actually. There are a lot of elements of the rest of this chapter that are just not explained at all. Um... Let's move on. Let's start a second slide. We're on fire tonight. Um, I'm not going to do the whole thing, but let's just uh, look at the first paragraph. The company took little gear of war, for their hope was in secrecy, not in battle. Aragorn had Enduril, but no other weapon, and he went forth clad only in the rusty green and only in rusty green and brown as a ranger of the wilderness. Boromir had a long sword, in fashion like Enduril, but of less lineage, and he bore also a shield and his war horn. Um, I love how we're about to, like, Boromir's always interrupting. Uh, Boromir's just about to interrupt the narrator here, right? He was interrupting Elrond all the time uh, back in the council. B uh, Boromir is now about to interrupt the narrator um, who's trying to do a description of all of their gear, uh, but then Boromir interrupts and blows his horn, and then we have a whole discussion about that. Then we get back to the description of their gear right afterwards. Um, but um, uh, anyway, uh, The company took little gear of war, for their hope was in secrecy, not in battle. That's where we begin the description. He's going to describe their gear. But notice how he sets our expectation, right? He sets our expectation. Um, and this is important. This is particularly important because it was... describing the warriors in their array in their you know their their the the full like military panoply of their armor and everything else is a pretty um uh a pretty common element of like epic poetic description right um before the battle begins you know you will might do a description of uh you know the the both sides in their in their uh, in their in their armor and everything, um, but um, we don't. We are told at the beginning. It's not just we don't get that. We're told that we we shouldn't expect it. If you, in case you were expecting that, right? 
um, to hear about how resplendent they all were. Yeah, no, they're totally, they're totally not. We start with Aragorn. Aragorn had Anduril, but no other weapon, and he went forth clad only in rusty green and brown as a ranger of the wilderness. Aragorn, the future king, does not look like a king. Um, and pause for a minute. Yeah, first of all, I, oh, I agree, Gildalowin. Rusty green and brown. Did you notice that? What is rusty green? Like green, when does green rust? Exactly. Rusty green and brown. Um, yeah, I don't think it means like copper necessarily. I, that's rusting is like what happens to copper, but it's not the same thing. Um, uh, rusty green and brown. Um, yeah, green covered in brown caked dirt, something like that. Yeah, like a like a, a dirty green. It's not a, it's not a you know. He's not clad in, you know, he's not clad in in, you know, freshly laundered Lincoln green like Robin Hood is so often described, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, green with like reddish uh, uh, reddish splotches. Yeah, yeah, maybe covered with dirt. Here's the thing. Talk about phrases I always took for granted. As a ranger of the wilderness. He went forth clad only in rusty green and brown. As a ranger of the wilderness. Why does he say that? As a ranger of the wilderness. What does that even mean? And here's where we have to do a lot of work. Imaginatively. Especially those of us who have spent any portion of our lives playing Dungeons and Dragons or other role-playing games, um, remember, ranger is not a thing in the same way, right? Um, it's just not. Um, what does that word mean? We talked about this, you know, just a couple years back. What is the word in the context of this story? What does the word ranger mean? Remember the last time, maybe the very last time, we use the word ranger was when Frodo said, is Strider one of the people of the old kings? I thought he was only a ranger. Right? Um, yeah, a ranger is one who ranges, JJ. Yeah, he's one who, one who, one who roams. Wilderness hobos. Yes, a homeless person. Uh, a homeless person from the wilderness, right? Um, uh, ranger is a slighting name. It's an insulting name. Um, seriously, I like with the way that they use the word ranger in Brie, I genuinely believe that in our current culture there would be social pressure not to use the word ranger because you might offend somebody. Seriously. Like it's that kind of word. In Brie, it's that kind of word, if you see what I mean. Right. Um, uh, like Gypsy. I, I, I quite like Gypsy. Uh, that's the closest parallel I can think of, Mudmore. It, it's not a perfect parallel because the word Gypsy um, in its etymology is suggesting something about like race and nationality, right? Which Ranger is not. Um, uh, but um, um, but yeah, like Hobo or Tramp. Tramp, indeed, a word used uh, in The Lord of the Rings. Um, um, remember, little better than tramps. Um, that's 
not, that's not set of rangers. That's set of some of the hobbits outside the Shire. Um, that all Shire hobbits tended to look at hobbits outside um, as a little better than tramps, but that's not true in Bree. Remember, that's the context of that word, that word usage. Um, but um, uh, anyway, it's a quasi-insulting word to use. So as a ranger of the wilderness, I kind of, I kind of see, um, uh, yeah, yeah, no, exactly Druid's Fire. I mean, I use, I draw the parallel with the word gypsy there, um, deliberately invoking the cultural slur. I, 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 I recognize that and I know, I, I, I acknowledge that. And that's what I'm saying. That's how the word ranger seems to be used in Brie. Um, uh, that's exactly what I mean when I'm saying, I think in our, if, uh, you know, like, um, the people in the common room of the prancing pony were to be brought directly into our current culture, people would tell them they shouldn't use that word because it, you know, uh, was offensive. Um, but, um, Yeah. Anyway, um, now, yeah. So JJ, I'm going to be interested to see how, cause I do think that it changes. I think that it evolves. JJ, you're remembering the Rangers of Ithilien, right? But remember by that time, this is Frodo and Sam looking at them. The word Ranger has been redefined. And I think that's the point that I'm working up to. I think that this is the beginning of the transformation of that word. Um, just like the words, the name Strider is explicitly an insult. I think that Bilbo is vaguely offended by it when Frodo says it. When Frodo says, Strider, um, you seem to have a lot of names. And Bilbo responds by saying, well, Strider is one I hadn't heard before anyway. Um, I, 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 there's like a hint of, um, a hint of snoot, I think, in, uh, in, in, in Bilbo's, I, I don't know that I would go so far as like, re, you know, uh, rebuke, but um, there's a little bit of like, what the, why are you calling him that, right? Um, and uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, his name, Strider, is given to him as an insult. Um, it is like Longshanks, which Bill Fernie calls him on the way out of Bree, right? Um, in fact, it means something quite similar. Um, Trifle says it seems more like a name that you would give an animal, not a human. Yes. Kind of sounds like a horse's name, doesn't it? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, long shanks just means long-legged. It does. It does. But it's very clear that Bill Fernie means it as an insult. Um, you know, that he's, he's uh, uh, using it insultingly uh, towards him. Um, the fact that he wanders around all the time, and what does that prove? What does that mean to them in Brie? That he's a wanderer, homeless, rootless, pointless, feckless, probably a thief, 
unreliable, right? Not one of them. Um, uh, not decent folk, right? Um, yeah, homeless, drifter, vagabond, rascal. All of those ideas are clearly attached, and you know, some of them explicitly attached uh, to Aragorn in the text back in the Strider chapter. Um, yeah, I, I, rootless. We don't know anything about them, Freebird, exactly. Where do they come from? What are they doing? What are they up to? Why are they, they, on the one hand, they're not from here, but on the other hand, they come wandering through here all the time, right? Why? What are they up to? Why do they keep, if they're not, if they don't live here, why do they keep hanging around here, right? Um, uh, they can't, they got to be up to no good, right? They're likely up to no good. So even the Longshanks insult, like, yeah, he's saying he's got long legs, um, and he's called Strider because he's always roaming about, rootless, wandering, vagabond, shiftless, right? Um, and exactly, Lincoln, we've seen that he cultivated his rascally look. Anyway, the point that I'm trying to make is that both of those words, Strider, his name, Strider, and the sort of collective noun, ranger, not collective noun, but, you know, semi uh, proper noun, ranger. Um, both seem to be sort of angled in that direction um, uh, in Brie. Um, but they've already changed, right? The name Strider, he has embraced the name Strider. Um, and it is now, it's now a name used affectionately. Right. Um, uh, the hobbits use it and they use it affectionately. I get the impression that they have adopted it. Here's my sense of the name, the use, their use of the name Strider and their persistent use. They're going to carry on using it. Right. Um, we will see we will see Pippin addressing uh, Aragorn that way in the Houses of the Healing. Right. Later on. Um, uh, th this is, um, um, you know, Sam will still call him that on the field, the field of Cormallon. Um, it's, uh, they will never stop calling in this. So how does this happen at the beginning? At least Sam, Sam is the longest holdout, but they're not sure about him. He looks like a rascal, right? He sort of fits the name later when they begin to trust him. They keep calling him that, right? And I think it's to tease him. I think it's, it seems to me to fit in the pattern of their hobbitry, right? Um, at first, they called him Strider because that's how he was introduced and it seemed to fit, right? This like, okay, you know, Vagabond Wanderer. Okay, Mr. Vagabond Wanderer, right? Uh, um, uh, nice to meet you. I'm not sure that you're not, right? Um, and then as they came to know him better and to trust him more... They carried on calling him Vagabond Wanderer because now it's like funny, <laughs> right? Uh, it's fu it's funny. It's affectionate um, in the way that insults become affectionate. In the that's what hobbitry is about, right? It's one of the primary expressions of hobbitry uh, is affectionate insults, um, and they've taken that insult and they've made it into a name of affection. Um, 
it's possible they don't pick up on the insultingness of Strider's names, but I think they do. I th and the reason I think they do is that they're thinking of him in exactly the same ways. Um, I'm thinking of that for that, uh, um, that, the, narrat the narrator's comment, which I've already half quoted, and which, by the way, is telling us exactly what Frodo is thinking from earlier on, um, that when Frodo, when, uh, uh, you know, he began to fear that they had fallen in with a rascal. Remember that? Um, uh, they see him in exactly those terms. Uh, it's still possible that they're not really processing that that's what the names are intended to mean. But for that reason, I kind of think you know, they sort of accept that that's how they come to see him. Um, and it takes a little while for them to come around to be truly convinced that he's not, um, uh, that that's not what he really is. Um, yeah. And again, he's going to come around and, um, embrace it. Uh, we know he's already embraced it, right? Uh, the affection with which, again, there's Bilbo's response, right? Well, Strider is one I haven't heard before anyway. Um, uh, sounding, you know, puzzled and kind of, I think, kind of vaguely scandalized, you know, just like a tiny little bit scandalized uh, that uh, uh, that Frodo's calling him Strider. Um, and but Strider totally accepts it. Right. That's how it was introduced. You know, uh, uh, you know, they call me that in Bree and that's how I was introduced to him. Um, uh, he's totally fine with it. Right. Um yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, for Thoughtless, I agree. The common use of what we call hobbitry would make them very sensitive to the difference between that and honest cruelty. I agree. I agree. Um, this is why it's interesting to me that they keep calling him that after they learn what his real name is, right? Um, Gandalf writes about Strider because he knows that's what they call him in Bree. So if they're going to meet him in Bree, they'll probably meet him, be introduced to him as Strider, right? Um, but Rowan, exactly. Aragorn, Gandalf reveals his true name and they learn his true name, right? Um, but even after his true name is revealed, and even though everybody but Sam seems to be pretty on board with the fact that the sketchy looking guy, uh, you know, the kind of creepy, you know, sketchy looking guy is a friend of Gandalf and an ally, right? Except for Sam, they all seem on board with that relatively quickly. Um, uh, Sam is the only one who's expressing reservations, but, um, but they don't change. They've learned what his real name is, right? They know that he's called Aragorn. They could start calling him Aragorn. Immediately. Right. Um, but they don't. They never do. <laughs> right. They keep calling him Strider. And that's why I think Fourth Dauntless, that's the moment. It's a sign of his acceptance. Right. Uh, you know, they called him Strider at first because he was introduced to him that way and it seemed to fit him. Right. Then they learned who he really was. A secret friend of Gandalf. Right. And there's more to him than appears on, you know, you know, beneath the surface, as Bilbo's verses in the in the letter suggest. Um, so they accept him and you can tell that they accept him on account of how they continue to go on and call him Strider. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, yes. Um, right, exactly. Um, now, Anna, I agree that I don't think that St Strider does make it clear that he's in disguise. Um, they probably should not be going around the inn, right, calling him Aragorn from moment one, right? But again, when they're in the wilderness, they could totally switch if they wanted to, right? But they clearly don't want to. Even then, uh, even now, right? Um, I mean, remember, we just went through the same thing again. He, Frodo, not only has Frodo gotten to know Strider and gained a strong affection for him, as he explains, but he learned that he's one of the peoples of the Old Kings, right? Oh, oh yeah, actually, he's like totally a Numenorian and, um, you know, like probable heir to the throne, you know, holder of the sword that was broken. Like if there was a big reveal, remember, you know, at... Uh, you know, he was named as Elendil's heir and everything. Frodo knows exactly who Strider is and what a big deal he is, right? And what does he say as soon as Aragorn, uh, uh, son of Arathorn, is named, right, as a member of the company by Elrond, Frodo says, Strider! <laughs> right? Uh, it's, it's, uh, yeah. If there was ever a point at which they were going to code switch and which they're going to stop calling him Str get over the strider thing and start calling him by his real name it would be after the council of elrond right um exactly how big a deal aragorn is is now perfectly plain right but they keep doing it and he accepts it um uh and i agree for thomas it is worth noticing that the narrator is calling him aragorn even though the hobbits still refer to him as Strider. Um, yeah, I think that that's, um, that's, that's interesting. I think it's important. But anyway, back to as a ranger of the wilderness. What is being communicated to us? Um, again, this is not, I, I totally, for many years without even ever thinking about it, I totally read this as clad only in rusty green and brown, you know, like rangers do. And I'm reading this and I'm like, yep, the ranger I used to play would dress like that all the time. Of course they do. That's what a ranger is, right? But Aragorn defined that character class, right? I mean, uh, Aragorn the ranger became an archetype uh, in, like, role-playing games of the late 20th century. Um, yeah, Aranas, I think it's exactly the point. He looks scruffy again. Remember how he looked like a prince? Um, you know, he was all decked out at the in the Hall of Fire, right? He was all decked out in, uh, 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 you know, this regal garb and everything, standing with Arwen. Um, he looks scruffy. He's disguised again. Um, uh, yeah, as a ranger of the wilderness. He looks like a vagabond again. He went forth clad only in rusty green and brown. Only. Why only? Well, only meaning he has no armor, right? So don't imagine him in armor and like a ceremonial cape or something. Um, and I know some of you are, are thinking about Findigil King's writer here. Um, it is possible. It is possible. Um, if I had to uh, nominate a word in this paragraph that Findigil King's writer interjected into the text, it would be the word only. Um, 
uh, he went forth clad only in rusty green. Like, don't uh, you you might have seen King Alessar, you know, go forth on a journey or or something like that. It's not like that, right? Get that image out of your head if you've got it, right? He went forth clad only in rusty green and brown as a ranger of the wilderness. He's back in disguise. He's back in disguise, not only in camouflage. He is in camouflage, Freebird, as you say, um, but he's not only... Um, he's not only camouflage to blend in in the countryside. Um, he's also in disguise again. He looks like a vagabond. Um, not only would you not look at him and think, you know, um, uh, he must be a king, right? Um, you don't, not only do you not do that, um, but uh, you think he's you might mistake him for a rascal, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yes, Ray, you noticed the, uh, the, my very careful quotation of uh, uh, the first and not the second line uh, of that particular Monty Python quotation. Um, but, um, but yeah, Blot is wondering to what extent is Aragorn himself considered a, a disguise? And I... I think a considerable um, uh, extent, um, a considerable extent. That was clear in Brie, I think, in that conversation with Frodo. I do have a rascally look about me, don't I? Right? He knows it. Um, uh, and Frodo's reference to how his whole demeanor has changed. He's deliberately acting the part in Brie. Um, is he acting that same part? Is he acting like a vagabond? You know, does his voice change? He began to speak like the Brelanders, but now he doesn't. No, I don't think he's, you know, he's not, um, uh, he's not doing, uh, um, method acting here, you know, like it's not, I don't think it's like that. Um, but yeah, he is going out as a ranger of the wilderness. Um, exactly. Matthew Hirsch and Rotor, we are looking at Aragorn cloaked. That's exactly right. That's exactly it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so... Hmm, I'd have to think about that, Bjorning. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, Lincoln is saying he's going forth as a vagabond rather than a king returning to his rightful throne. Yes, yes. And Bjorning was saying that uh, he's representing his own role. Um laboring to defeat Sauron, not claiming his kingship even a little, except he totally is. Gonna. I mean, that's why... Where's he going? Aragorn's going to Minas Tirith, right? Fortunately, the ring-bearer is going his direction for quite some time, right? But he's not going to Mount Doom. He's going to Minas Tirith. Um, that's what he said. That's what he said. Right, that he's going to Minas Tirith. So he explicitly actually is going back to Gondor with Boromir, who will certainly testify that he is the heir of Isildur. So he actually kind of is going back to... Now, I agree, I think it's important that it doesn't look like it, right? He's not like, well, now that the cat's out of the bag, right, I might as well wear my ermine, you know, uh, uh, on this journey, right? Um, I do still think it's important that he is going forth in humility, but it isn't true that he's not going forth with any desire to claim his throne. He's totally 
that's why he's going. It's where he's going to claim his throne. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and an answer to a prophecy, too. Exactly like Leobot. I mean, just stop, let's stop for a second, and then we will stop for a week. Um, but let's just stop for a second and put yourself in Aragorn's shoes. What's, what's, what's plan A? Put yourself in his position. What's he doing? How's this supposed to go? It's not going to, we know it's not going to go the way it's, he has in mind, right? But if everything goes according to plan, what's meant to happen? He and Boromir are meant to return to Gondor together. That's the plan. The two of them are going to accompany the ring. I don't know where. Uh, you know, if Rauros, I doubt Rauros was always the plan. That seems to be a contingency plan on Aragorn's part. But, um, uh, but anyway, they were always going to end up down in the, you know, Mordor's right across the river. So, you know, um, they're always going to end up in that region anyway. So they're going to accompany the ring to Gondor, the Gondor-ish region. And then he and Boromir are going to go to Minas Tirith and Boromir's going to say, okay, father, we had the vision. I went on the quest to find the meaning of the riddle and to seek for the sword that was broken. Um, Ta-da! Here's the wielder of the sword that was broken. Um, Look, it's the shards of Narsil, reforged. Ah, let me introduce you to the heir of Isildur. Right, uh, descend, uh, uh, descended by direct lineage uh, from Isildur, son of Elendil himself. Dad, there you go. Um, that's the plan. That's plan A, right? That's plan A. Now, I get many of you are speculating that that conversation would not have gone, gone super well, right? And I think you're right about that. But that's clearly plan A. That That's, it seems... I mean, when he says he's going to Minas Tirith with Boromir, how else is that supposed to go down, right? You know, is Boromir has temptation to overcome yet, and I don't just mean the temptation of the ring. Um, when they get closer and closer to Minas Tirith, potential rivalry with Aragorn is going to become more and more real. Um, but, uh, but I believe in Boromir. I think if it weren't for the other problem, um, he probably might have pulled that off. Right. Um, I don't know what would have happened. I don't know what Denethor would have said. But but keep in mind, at that moment, on this day, when they're setting out, that's what Aragorn thinks he's doing. That's what he's preparing for. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Yes, it would have been interesting, Ray, to see Boromir having to choose between honoring the kingship or his father. Yes. Um, um, yes, as, uh, someone once said, that'll be an interesting day, won't it? Um, sure would have been. Um, yeah, yeah. And Denethor and Aragorn have an interesting history, Jackie, of which Boromir is doubtless wholly ignorant, um, because he wasn't even there, right? Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, very, a very interesting, uh, a very interesting day indeed that would have been. But again, it's important for us to remember in this perspective, that's where we're going to, we're going to be getting a reference 
uh, in within a couple paragraphs. So maybe we'll get to it next week, maybe the week after, um, about what this day meant to Aragorn. That we'll come back to this. Like that's 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 the big deal. Um, but um, anyway, okay, all right. Um, let us. Um, yeah. Oh, and so one last comment. Uh, Astro Gypsy there in uh, YouTube was saying that what a rich play this is on the romance trope of the king as pauper, um, you know, seeing his nation uh, as a subject. Yes, I would also add, you know, like the foundling king and all that kind of like there's there are a bunch of ways in which Aragorn is kind of in choosing to go forth only as a ranger of the wilderness. He is kind of enacting several like mythic concepts right um yeah yeah i think that the, yeah he is the ur lost king exactly exactly um yes yes um how does aragorn think denethor would receive him well that is a wonderful question rowan i don't know i don't know um uh I can't imagine he assumes it's going to go well. I think he knows better than anybody else exactly how poorly it's likely to go, right? Uh, I mean, um, uh, uh, you know, Gandalf has a pretty interesting idea of it, I think. But, um, but yeah, uh, we don't really, we don't really know. But I think that um, that is one of the things that this day means to him. I mean, it's it is not going to claim his throne is not in any way a straightforward thing um yeah yeah um uh yes and for thomas you're right he's uh um he's going out to do the right thing um He's going out to do the right thing and neither to fight the prophecy or fulfill it both of which things often go badly right that's true that's true um and so in that way, he's kind of taking the best approach, right, uh, to this thing. Um, he's not going to, but, but yeah, it's, um, it's awkward. It's awkward. Anyway, okay, um, we're going we're gonna to pause here. We'll, we'll resume here. We'll come back to Boromir uh, and uh, his, the fascinating little comparison that we get there with Boromir. And then Boromir interrupting the narrator, uh, we will we will get there um, to Boromir winding his horn, um, because you don't wind horns up; you blow wind through them. Um, uh, but uh, yeah. Anyway, so, <laughs> so sorry, my own little pr uh, pronunciation uh, pet peeve there. I don't think it's a clockwork horn, Barry dear. I really, I really don't. Okay, um, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, let you folks go. If you can't stay for our field trip, we're going to do a field trip now. Um, so, of course, you're welcome to stay. Oops, that was just the wrong button to hit. Um, uh, you are welcome to stay uh, for our field trip. Um, uh, we will be back next week. Everything should be, um, once. I think I should be, Everything should be, schedule should be normal through the end of February. Then things will start getting interesting in March. Um, but I still should be okay for most Tuesdays. So hang on here a second. All right. Redraw my screen and then there we go. Okay. All right. 
Okay, are we ready for more investigation of Mirabelle, trying to understand how did Celebrimbor live, right? Yes. Yes, I'm ready. All right. Okay, and I think... How are you we... today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Good. It's a good day to do some archaeological research. Yes. Yeah, of course, you know, the other thing that really was born home to me um, mm -hmm. when I've been rereading The Fellowship of the Ring here the last, you know, the last few days um, is um, how very much of the text we have until we actually get to the action stages of their trip through Holland. Um, it's going it's to be still some time before we get even to Karathros, much less the wolves thereafter. So this section of the Eregian map that we've been saving here in the, here in the eastern central portion uh, of the map that we've walked all around um, is going to be quite, We may have time to explore an entire other region before we get there, actually. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was... Uh, there's a lot more that happens between right now. It's just a lot more text between now and that passage than I was kind of vaguely you know remembering uh in my head but um anyway yeah yeah you can kind of think of course one thing i want to do is that I, i've i've heard all of these uh stories that soon we're going to get this land in between right we're going to get this extension south of the troll shaws right mm -hmm. uh, this is a, yeah this uh, yeah 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 the this area of the Mithaethel River here, south of Talbruin and in north of Gwingris. Um, so, of course, like that's right nearby. We can definitely go and uh, um, we can definitely go and uh, explore that. And that'll, <laughs> that, that'll be something. But um, yeah, Hologro points out that the Grey Mountains and Iron Hills are lovely at this time of year. Very true. Very true. <laughs> um, if I actually hang on, let me stay with the map for a second. And uh, look at where we got. So when we were doing our Rovani, we went over to the Gladden Fields and the Vales of Anduin and went all the way up the river to Gundabad, to but not into Gundabad. Um, mm. And uh, um, yeah, so I mean, the other thing that we could do is just go do Northern Mirkwood because we did... Did we do Southern Mirkwood? No, we didn't do Southern Mirkwood. No, we did not. We did not. Yeah. Um, so we could, we could do Mirkwood and sort of go through and north that way because we're not going to get to Mirkwood at any point. We'll glimpse Dol Guldur from a very mm -hmm. long distance away. Uh, so we could kind of wait for that, I suppose. But... Um, Oh, that's right. I did. I forgot that Southern Mirkwood was quest gated. Holograw. Hmm. These things, which seemed like a good idea at the time, but are really unfortunate in retrospect. Um, but um, yes. Um, anyway, yeah. There's there's lots that we can do over here. I mean, looking at the. I want to save. Um, like Enidwyth and Dunland for later on. I'd rather wait for those until we are in the greater Saruman, Helm's Deep kind of area 
there. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah. Um, uh, don't worry. There's more than enough of Moria. <laughs> yeah. To keep us yeah. occupied for some no, exactly. Time. When we get into that'll be an interesting thing actually. When we have uh, we can start Moria at the same time we start the Moria in the text. But we get three chapters in the text. We're gonna be in the we're gonna be in Moria for like you know two years or something. Um, Which is as long as it takes to look at Moria. Right, but there's a lot of Moria, so yeah, it will be it will be interesting to see there. But um, yeah, uh, yeah. What was that, Druid's Fire? <laughs> I just get out of Moria with my completionist route on my main. I don't want yeah. to go back anytime soon. Don't worry, I, it'll be a while. You'll have a bit of a break before diving back in. I too once did completionist Moria at uh, an uh, an earlier more carefree time of my existence. Um, uh, <laughs> I, yeah, but, I um, remember. Yeah, yeah. Um, I did Completionist Moria once. Um, semi I prefer the speed run of Moria better. Yeah, which is the other way I did it. <laughs> as, as, I, as I somewhat recall, the uh, details of that 14-hour stream get a little fuzzy at the end. Uh, but... Um, but yeah. Okay. Anyway. Um, so yeah, we can, we can figure it out once we finish. Uh, I, so I definitely don't want to continue South is what I'm saying across the yes. river down into Enidwyth here when we finish Not yet. here in Mirabelle. Mm-hmm. Not yet. Um, we can, we'll definitely do the troll shots, but after that, we've done quite a lot of Eriador mm-hmm. here. Um, because didn't we, we finished the troll shots, North Downs, Lonelands, Shire, um, mm-hmm. Did we do even dim? Lake Everswim? Yeah, I think we'd. It's it all runs it, together. I, but I think that was the time where I was out because I was I couldn't get my baby to sleep for a couple right. Of months. <laughs> right, so. might have been. I know we did Forakal and we did Angmar. I think we're mostly mm-hmm. done with um, Ariador. Um, Ow. Yeah, I thought we did even dim way back. Yeah, I mean, I got, apart from Men and Wife and Dunland and Nan Kurnir and stuff, there we're we're pretty much done. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think we're 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 practically finished uh, with Eriador. So if we if we kick over into, I think focusing our attention on Rovanian for our non-text segments um, would be very sensible because. You know, then we can save Rohan and Gondor, you know, and Mordor for those other portions of the book. Um, you know, well, goodness knows we'll have plenty of uh, Two Towers and Return of the King in which to also talk about things not directly pr- plot related. Um, <laughs> so I think we can I think we can do that. Um, but yeah, yeah. Um, Anarwin will definitely go into the new area uh, very soon. Um uh, but in the interest of that, let's, oh, well, look, darkness fell while I was looking at the map. Okay. That's when, you know, you've been looking at the map too long. <laughs> All right. Um, let's, let's, now that we can't say anything, uh, let's head out. So where we got last time, oops, here, I can't, you can't go through here at all. No. See, that's why I kept jumping through when I was in that place with Grifflet last week, um, where Galdor sitting in the, um, What's mm-hmm. it called? The place where, the, by Dalyamroth, where the elf cave is by Dalyamroth. Um, oh, yes. And I was marveling at the fact that there's this, like, open-backed screen that you can just jump straight through. 
uh, without oh, an invisible no. wall there. And yeah, and I was like, exactly moments like that where there's this big, huge opening uh, and that looks like you should just be able to walk straight through and you can't. Um, okay, so one of the things that we notice is that there, there's lots of branching paths. There's, uh, they have designed ways to get like anywhere from anywhere else. So this is another thing that really emphasizes the fact that um, this is not a defensive... This is not a place in defensive posture, right? Oh, um, yeah, that'd be a nightmare. Yeah, it's not like a single path that you can, you know, defend and retreat back up or anything like that. I mean, every single one of these has an intersection. You go out either side of the of the of the hall at the top. We've got the two, you know, the way down one way and then the way <laughs> down over here. And then when we come down over here, um, as we were seeing, we were looking at the approach from that direction before. And now... Um, you can also yeah, it's come hardly down Helm's over here. Deep, is it? This is not Helm's Deep, exactly. So this is like the sort of like the opposite of some kind of uh, you know like um, uh, uh, concentric defensive position of some sort, right? But no, um, it's a anyway, thoroughfare. Yeah, thinking about back to that approach. So we were crossing the river, and then you. You come up here now. I want to see where the roads go. I'm trying to get a sense of the roads and therefore a sense of the flow of this place. So we've just come up and we've just uh, had our refreshments, right? We've had our our mm -hmm. our, our uh, uh, comestible and aesthetic refreshments here in our little glade, um, with the food court Good for the belly and for the soul. That's it. That's it. And now we can go up to the party hall as we saw, or we could come down here. Now, what was this? Look, this is all paved. There are paving yeah. stones all the way to the edge of the cliff here. But there's no evidence oh. of a wall of any kind here. So this was just like an open... I mean, the, fact that, yeah, the fact that there are trees here says nothing because those trees are probably less than 5,000 years old. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, um, so I'm turning off my overhead light so I can see the screen better in the darkness. Um, yeah, it's 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 dim. Okay, I'll look. It's more. a nice view though. It is a nice view. We'll look in more detail when we get a little bit of daylight on a future session at what we're seeing across the river. For now, I want to focus on what we see here, because now looking down, if I'm if I'm oriented properly, still. I think that this path is the one that we came up from the river and we had the right fork and the left fork. The right fork took us up to the to the food court and the refreshment zone up there. And um, and we didn't. And I think this is the other one, right? Yes. This is the other one. Um, so you might as well get on a horse. Um, Got a Chick-fil-A and a Panda Express. <laughs> right. So this is. Yeah, because this is the path that we were looking at. Right. This is the one that comes down by from the river. Yes, it is. Right. Here we go. Yes, that, exactly. So that's the Ford. Uh, yeah. And, and if you take your first right and then your first left, right, kind of zag and continue up. There you go up to the refreshment zone. Right. Yeah. Um, or you take a left to come down. So you're not heading up to the short term party or the long term party at the function center at the very top of the hill. Instead, if you come down this way, now you're immediately confronted by this beautiful bridge, which probably makes you regret the fact that you just waded the river uh, a little bit further up, which is kind of interesting, isn't it? I mean, 
there's no evidence that there used to be a bridge up here, is there? I mean, I know we've got a little waterfall know. in between, right? So where, yeah. you know, the road is right along the river top here, um, you know, after we drop down, you've got a highly elevated bridge above the lower river on the bottom side of the falls. Maybe but this I, wasn't as steep a drop back then. Maybe. I mean, it's always possible. 5,000 years, a lot can happen. 5,000 years, a lot can happen, especially to rivers. But if we look, there's a there's another archway, not like not quite like the not as th sort of thick, you know, um, not as big uh, as mm -hmm. the um, uh, uh, not as big as the um, arches right inside the boundary from Moria, right? Um, yep. It's not it's not quite. These are just single posts with a sort of trellis between them there, right? Um, but the fact that there are remnants of those posts suggest to me that if there had been a bridge here, we would know it. I'm not saying it would necessarily still be standing, but we would know that it used to be here. Now, this is fairly deep. This is not exactly a ford, though, look, you can faintly see the road continuing down. Yeah, I, I feel like the ground sank or something. Yeah, something must have happened. The river was definitely not... I mean, you didn't have to swim your horses because yeah, you, can, you can faintly see where the road, the old paving stones run along the bottom of the riverbed there. Yeah, it's probably a sinkhole or something. It's possible. It's possible. So, yeah, there might have been some kind of geological disturbance here to change the flow yeah. of the river in some way. Maybe, or maybe that's maybe it. it. Was maybe just it was something you, you got your toes a little wet, like the Nimmerdale crossing or something. Right, right, yeah. Um, yeah, I could easily believe that. Um, it is possible, Stunduck, that they used to have a ferry boat crossing. Um, something like that, um, a nice little tasteful swan boat. One could one could imagine such a thing, but again, the fact that we have these posts remaining here and the and the cobblestones under the water, you wouldn't and, pave water. Yeah, you're going to yeah, go across and now the, the cobblestones boat. under the water. Seem to more or less prove that it wasn't a ferry. I think, um, mm -hmm. but yeah. um, possibly yeah. some of these some of these falls maybe they weren't as steep maybe it was a more uh, gradual grade and then just bits broke away over the years yeah 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 it is possible it is possible and something might have happened near the source or who knows or maybe um, there was a dam right also possible yeah Ooh. oh yeah remember there there were some disturbances in the water further up if we recall yes yeah, um, certainly the recent damming of the Saranan is uh, a disturbance of the river. Um, but it is a good question. Like, would I wonder, would would the Noldor ever dam rivers? They like making stuff, but they like also making stuff. Smiths uh, would they have like water mills and water power for things like bellows or mills or something like that? That would be very useful if you were. Doesn't it? Doesn't it seem likely? Things. I mean, see, and this is something you know. I've been having that. We were having this conversation. Where was it? Middlemoot. We were having this conversation. Um, mm. uh, people tend, I think, to be too rash in saying that, like Tolkien and the elves don't like technology. That's not quite true. It's not about technology, exactly. Um, there's many things that they don't like, but again, but technology is a big word, 
right? Um, there are many yeah. elements of technology that elves clearly do like, right? Um, mm-hmm. For instance, whatever the rope is, Sam's rope, um, mm-hmm. they, you know, they have rope making technology that they could have taught to Sam. Yeah. If they knew that that craft had delighted him. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so like they, anyway, the point is to say it's, that, it, that, I mean, and the Noldor are yeah. the most, you know, crafty, uh, you know, the wisest in this sense of the word wisdom of all of the elves. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think that people tend to think that, uh, you know, he didn't, what he didn't like was industry, right? What he didn't like were factories. What he didn't like were... Yeah. Uh, and I know that, like, a dam and, uh, you know, the idea of a dam and, like, maybe something like hydroelectric power or something like that, that is, yeah, he just, he's not not really a big fan of electricity, exactly. Um, but, again, it's different. It's different. Well, uh, to, to, to follow another... Um... To, to follow another apologist on the vein of Tolkien, um, to quote Chesterton, mm-hmm. we are made to be stewards of the earth. So right. I don't. I right. think technology, as long as it's not denuding and depriving us of nature and and punishing it, would yeah. be acceptable by Tolkien's standards. All tools are technology. Again, I come back to the rope making. Right? You know. Yeah. Uh, not only making rope, but mm-hmm. making better rope rope that is so much stronger and better um that mm-hmm. it seems magical maybe it is magical maybe it's not magical i mean i agree bury a deer that any sufficiently elvish technology is ind- indistinguishable from magic right that is very possible um yep. but yes yep. i do think that there can be technology that is it's more about the ad- certainly the direction that the modern world the 20th century was taking technology Tolkien did not like. And why didn't he like it? Because modern technology almost always led to bombs. I mean, remember, it was, this is right in the middle of the development of the atomic bomb period that he was doing a lot of his thinking Mm -hmm. and writing. Um, Well, well, even before then, the land seizures and the Industrial Revolution that wreaked havoc on England. Yes, absolutely. Exactly. The the shabby destruction of the countryside, right? Yeah, Uh, the child labor. Yes, yes. Uh, And not only that, but even the, like, the impersonal, ugly products, replacing careful craftsmanship by people's hands, right? Instead Mm -hmm. of getting a, uh, instead of getting a, a, a chair that had been, this is his illustration, you know, a chair that had been carefully crafted by, you know, a wood carver, you know, by a, 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 -hmm. you know, a, um, a craftsman, you're getting something turned out of a factory, which is Uh low quality, soulless, ugly, um, you know, and even the nature was a mockery of nature with the enclosure yeah. act. You got all of the people yes. tearing down old forests and making landscapes. Yes. You know, yes. This is building artificial nature. Exactly. Exactly. Modified anyway, so nature. So. This is all as much as to say one has to guard one's knee jerk reactions to say elves don't do technology. Um, they do. They, they do it differently and different things drive it. 
Um, mm -hmm. uh, exactly, Amethorn, war has been a big driver of technology, and it was not necessarily always so with the elves, right? Um, mm -hmm. But um, anyway, okay, so here we are at our probably not Ford, well, not, this is not even a Ford, this is just the one sport. <laughs> this is just a place where the road encounters a river that you have to swim across uh, right yep. now. Uh, but anyway, it used to be the road. So now we can see from a distance where we were going up to. That's the that's the 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 function hall at the top of the hill or near the top of the hill. Um, that gazebo at the top is the very top. And, you know, the more I look at that gazebo from a distance, the less it looks like a lookout post. Right. Um, yeah, it's it's a. It's a place to drink your wine and look out over the landscape and think high thoughts. I kind of think so. I kind of think so. Like, you know, is it like when you're when you're at a funk at a at a party at the function hall, right? You know, like you you is, that, is this where you retire for quiet conversation, right? Up to you know you you take the stairs up to the very top of the hill. Um, so you can you know, talk with your friend without screaming over the band. Exactly, <laughs> without screaming over the band. That's exactly what you do. Um, and without, you know, disturbing, you know, if, if someone is singing or telling a story or something, you know, you don't want to make a noise like in the Hall of Fire. Um, oh, so, yeah. Uh, when you have your dry cough, you can't control. Exactly. Exactly. And you'll see how we have along this walk that winds its uh, uh, meandering and gradual way up to that little gazebo at the very top of the hill. Um, there are lots of gazebos along the way. Right. So you mm -hmm. could stop at any one of these waypoints or if you find one uh you know one gazebo already occupied you can you know pr proceed with your friend to the next one or whatever um take a turn about the party room yeah exactly exactly well, so, it was a form of recreation you'd get up and you'd walk with your friends this is the perfect place to do it yeah yeah climb up to the top and look around wonderful view so yeah no i think that's it's this seems to be an extended part uh, the more like from 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 up there, I was thinking like you know watchtowers, but I don't think um, I don't think they're watchtowers. Um, Alma Ray is thinking it, it could be like a pub crawl. Yeah, yeah, I could see. Do, do, do you think they like you know set up a set up like separate tables, like separate bars in or, each? Uh, it'd be like the Kennedy the Center where you just keep getting ambushed by bars. <laughs> Right. <laughs> every every corner you come around, there's a different bar. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that would be $13 a glass. Right. At least here, you know, yeah, it would be uh, it would just be like hospitality at every turn in the road. Right. That'd be the last cool. one's the AA meeting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's cool. I think it's cool. So. That's an interesting vantage from here. So, okay, so if this looks tempting, you can see right in front of you is the road up there, and you can get your refreshments along the way, right? Yeah, it's, a, uh, it's almost an advertisement. It is almost an advertisement, yeah, yeah. This is really a, a focal point uh, of this side of the hill. But again, what we saw when we went up appeal. there, it has yeah. curb appeal, great curb appeal. But what it was when we went up there, it's not a house, right? Nobody lived there. It's so it's mm -hmm. it's it's not showing off anyone's residence. It's not a defensive structure. It's not a military structure at all. It's a party no, hall. It's a it's a, yeah, it's a sign saying yeah. party in here. It's the balloons on the mailbox. Right. Exactly. Exactly. The balloons on the mailbox. That's exactly right. Um, OK, so now we have stairs, which so we have another choice of routes. Right. 
Um, let's go back. Very we're, steep bridge. We're, oh yeah, it's getting late. So we'll we'll come back. We'll finish on the patio that we were just at before. Um, so this is the back way up. Um, yeah. Oh, but of course you can still continue down here. You've got more choices. Yep. Okay, so just in case you wanted to come up and take in the view from the patio here before you went on. So again, you do get the sense that these roads, with all the choices of roads and all the intersections here, are not really designed for, certainly not designed for defense. Um, and they're certainly not designed for efficiency, right? I mean, we we built a perfectly good path up to up to there, up there right um mm. but now we've built the second path that brings you to here and then another stairway up to that same place right so in case you wanted to get there by a slightly more roundabout route right um so again what i'm getting at here is that this whole place is giving me the impression of the fact that like wandering around is a big part of what you do yeah Right. That it's it's like it's not about the destination. It's about the journey, even when you're at your destination. Um, there are so many things to do here. Yeah. And one of which seems to be stroll around. And that's why we have a patio here, which I'm betting was an open patio. I mean, these trees don't look anything like 5000 years old. Um, I bet you no. they weren't here. I bet you this was just an open patio where you could sit here and you could look at the river, look at the waterfall, which may or may not have been the same as it is now. But in any case, that bridge was right. So yeah, there's the this lovely bridge sure. over. So it was clearly it was a river that was in, you know, a canyon there. This part of the river looks like it's similar to what it was before. Um, and uh, and you can look out and there's the whatever that hall is. We're getting a little bit of daylight now. I can see it a little better. There's this hall across the way. Yeah, very nice. Um, and uh, some more stuff. And then if we look, I'm getting the trees now. If we look in this direction. There's a few scattered things, but they're only really scattered. It's still a lot of rough. I mean, look at the boulders. Again, like, you know, open rolling hills with boulders on uh, is what we're... Um, what we're seeing here down to the up here to the north. But anyway, okay. Um, so I'm getting a feel for like the spirit of this place, which is not a city by any definition that we've, we've still not seen a single place where people live. Again, I, I believe that it, um, people did live here, but we yeah, they, <laughs> they would have had to. Yeah. Yeah. They would have had to, to but supply everything that. it needs. All right, so we'll, we'll continue our ramble next time. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll spend less time looking at the map and more time rambling. Um, but uh, but yeah, we should uh, um, we should go. I should let people go. It is late. So thank you everybody for joining us. We we end here on another beautiful sunrise. Uh, look at the look at moon set and the sunrise. We had a f almost full moon setting uh, as uh, the um, Hmm, look at that.
No, sorry, it's the star above my head, but it's really funny because it looks like it's on the horizon. So I'm like, look, oh, it's, it's like it's it's just as if the evening star were really, really bright. But that's artificial. That's just no, it's so I can find you head. when you run off. Yeah, but it's just where it's standing right here. It looks kind of it looks kind of cool. Anyway, all right. Yeah. Thank you. Good night, everybody. See you guys next week. Bye now.